So I thought initially to give some orientation for our day on the uh, theme of the thinning of the self. And this will probably be the longest that I talk. Uh, and the rest of the day will be primarily uh, practices. But it's important to have some orientation related to the theme. I think I wanted to do that in, in uh, sort of two steps. Uh, the first step is to say that looking into, we might say, the nature of the self and the nature of this teaching that's usually translated as not-self is one of the fundamental areas of insight traditionally. Many of you know that we often call this practice insight meditation. This is called Insight Santa Cruz. And you may have said, what kind of insights are promised? What kind of insights should I expect? What kind of insight should I have had already that I'm not sure if I had? You know, what's this insight? And uh, there are many kinds of insights that we can occur. And those of you who've been practicing, I'm sure I've had many kinds of insights. There, <clears throat> a lot of them can be more personal. You know, you, we learn how the mind works. We learn, oh, I have this pattern. You know, when I first meditated, I was a student, and I came from a family that planned a lot. You know, for a long time, when we had family get-togethers, before we would even say hello, we would plan when we were going to get together next. So a little bit extreme in some ways. And, and so when I first started meditating, I noticed I was planning all the time. I was a student. I had a report due in two days. And I would go in, out. Then I'd go to my report, and I'd you know, plan it to death, so to speak. And, but if you had asked me before I started meditating, do you plan a lot, I probably would have said, normal amount. But when I first started meditating, I had insight into that I was a big planner. You know, my sister actually has an advanced degree in planning, <laughs> uh, city planning, you know, and she wor she has she makes her living uh, as a health planner for Kaiser. So obviously useful. Not to, not criticizing planning, um, <clears throat> very useful. Uh, we wouldn't be here without good planning and so forth. But that that was that was a kind of personal insight. I came to see oh. I plan a lot, and we have, that's some of what we learn in meditation because we just watch the mind, we watch, watch the heart, or we learn about, oh, I have this um, preoccupation, or, oh, I was really upset by that which happened, right, with this friend, and so forth. And so we may uh, have that kind of, of insight, very, very important. You know, we may have, uh, be able to, when the mind gets clear, and the mind gets quiet, we may see the natural world uh, in a clearer way, without distraction. We may watch the sunset without commentary, and sometimes things sparkle more. They are more alive, right? And that can be a kind of insight. <clears throat> the kind of insight that is at the heart of the tradition was described over the, actually over the millennia, in three main ways. There are three main kinds of insights that we could say are liberating insights. And then there's a nice book that came out a little while ago by uh, Rob Berbea, who is a teacher in England. <clears throat> and his book is called uh, Seeing That Freeze. Strongly recommended, wonderful book. Kind of a, and I like that phrase that ultimately we're not just interested in being calm. Some, sometimes we like at first meditation, oh, I get, I'm become more calm, more peaceful, very important. But the center of the teaching, the practice has always been freedom, has always been liberation. And we're interested in insight that is freeing. We can talk about it as liberating insights, or seeing that freeze. 
And traditionally, that's been understood in three main ways. And these are the uh, so-called three characteristics. And we be become more insightful first about impermanence, about the fact that things are changing. And the, the um, understanding is that normally we don't see these areas clearly. We know intellectually that everything changes, of course, but we actually don't track change and we actually don't take it seriously. And impermanence understood carefully also means that everything arises and passes away, including us, right? And so part of impermanence practice has traditionally been uh, mindfulness of death, right? You know, traditionally, people might actually be with corpses or be in charnel grounds and so forth. And I know that's an interest of Bob's, right? To take people to see autopsies and so forth, right? I mean, is, is that offered to everyone here at times? Right, so I know that's <clears throat> been an interest in Bob. So that's one area. And partly, our minds are distracted, so we actually don't notice moment-to-moment -moment change that we can notice when the mind gets more quiet, how things are changing and we have this uh, uh, filter of language and conceptualization which actually makes it harder to see actually how things are changing all the time because we look at everything through the filter of words and language. When the mind gets more quiet we see in a different way. So that's one area of the training, a whole area of training and impermanence. The second area is to look more carefully at what in the uh, tradition is called dukkha, which I like to translate as reactivity. It's usually translated as suffering, which I don't think is a great translation. It can be misleading. It's that way that we have resistance to the present moment. We react compulsively. And this is taken to be a source of uh, delusion and confusion, as well as suffering, when we do that. And so a whole second area which is a part of, uh, I think, everyone's practice, is to notice when we become reactive. It's a big part of our mindfulness practice. We become, ideally, <coughs> experts on the ways that we lose it, so to speak, right? It's not what we advertise in the literature, is it? Come, study how you lose it. <laughs> study how you suffer. How wonderful. Uh, so we don't advertise that, but in actuality, it's actually very important. You know, we also we also open up to beautiful qualities like kindness and compassion and equanimity and aliveness and so forth. But part of the work definitely is looking at where we're reactive and studying that over and over again. It's huge. It's a you know um, sometimes seen to be the core area where we gain insight. It's related to learning about the Four Noble Truths. You know, usually said to be there's suffering, there is a cause of suffering and this reactivity. There's the possibility of freedom of, we might say, I like to say, learning how better to respond rather than react. So working with reactivity doesn't mean we, we're passive, but we, work, we respond rather than react. That could be said to be the center of what we're doing here. And so that's the second area of fundamental training. And today we're going to look into the third area, which is the least obvious and the most confusing. This teaching called anatta, or not-self. So I thought I'd read a poem by uh, Rumi. Okay, everyone knows this is, this is a little bit of social commentary. Rumi, a Muslim, is the most popular poet in the United States, right? I've heard also in the world, right? So, okay, I won't say any more, but interesting, isn't it? <laughs> okay, so this is from a poem of his called The Tavern. <clears throat> and it's about this confusion about who we are, which we have at times. All day, I think about it, and then at night, I say it. Where did I come from? What am I supposed to be doing? 
I have no idea. My soul is from elsewhere, I'm sure of that, and I intend to end up there. This drunkenness began in some other tavern. When I get back uh, around to that place, I'll be completely sober. Meanwhile, I'm like a bird from another continent sitting in this aviary. The day is coming when I fly off, but who is it now in my ear who hears my voice? Who says words with my mouth? Who holds, who looks out with my eyes? What is the soul? I cannot stop asking these questions. If I could taste one sip of an answer, I could break out of this prison for drunks. I didn't come here of my own accord, and I can't leave that way. Whoever brought me here will have to take me home. So, who am I? What am I supposed to be doing here? We begin to look into these questions, and I think that there's, it's good to recognize that this whole area of the self is both complex conceptually when we look at it. And my approach today is going to be primarily practical. I'm going to put, use some simple metaphors of thinning the self and looking at the thick self as guides to very practically going into this territory. If we go into it primarily conceptually, it's hard. <coughs> uh, the Thai teacher Achan Cha was the teacher of Jack Kornfield and who I got to study with some. He said, if you look intellectually at the teaching of not self, uh, your head will fall off. <laughs> Do we, and so not encouraged. If it falls off, we have ways of putting it back on, so don't worry. But we, we will primarily not be looking intellectually at this because it's, I mean, there are ways of doing that. It's, it's confusing. So just, I wanted to point out initially some of the dimensions of confusion. Has anyone been confused about the teaching of not-self? Okay. It's confusing. Uh, no, no way around it. Here are a few indications. Uh, some of you know there's a very rich tradition of what's called uh, Jewish Buddhist humor. <laughs> there are websites for this. And here's an example related to our theme. The Torah says, love your neighbor as yourself. The Buddha says, there is no self. So maybe we're off the hook. <laughs> so we often hear that uh, anatta is, means there's no self. And I believe that's actually a bad translation. It's, it's better not self, and I'll get a little bit into it, but you know, you, you, you'll see, you'll see actually teachers use the phrase no self, which I think is, is misleading and confusing. Um, but you know, when you just look at the language, you look at other spiritual traditions or even Buddhist traditions, and people seem to use the words in ways which <clears throat> can be quite confusing. So some traditions talk about the true self, that the aim of spirituality is to really be the true self, or the authentic self, or the true person. Uh, in Some of you know in psychology, uh, like the psychology of Carl Jung, they talk about the aim of a ma uh, being a mature person is to, is to realize the self with a capital S, right? And then in other psychological traditions, we use words like uh, self or ego as neutral terms, just meaning the way that we have a certain sense of continuity and a sense of continuity over time and through space. But then other people use the word ego as negative. We have to go beyond the ego, right? And the ego is a problem. So you have some people talking about the ego, like in mainstream psychology, as neutral, and other people talking about it as bad. So I've been, I'm going to list some reasons for confusion, but we're not going to hang out there much. So anyone getting a little confused? Even in, even in Buddhist tradition, you have phrases, even where they talk about anatta, 
which I would translate as not-self. You have terms in Buddhist tradition, like someone who is at a high level of development, is called a maha-atta. That means a great self. So how does, that, how does that go together? And that's the term that was used for Gandhi, Mahatma. Some of you know it's the same thing. And someone who has uh, reached the level of development called stream entry, which isn't the first level of awakening, is called in the original language a, bi a big person. Okay, you got it, right? So the, you can say, the language is not consistent. You know. And Achan Cha, he said, you know, actually, um, to say that self is true is a mistake. To say that not self is true is a mistake. You see why I'm aiming to be practical, <laughs> right? And then there's even a famous passage uh, in the Buddha's teaching where he encountered a wandering yogi named Vachagata. Who? Let me see if I have this here. I can see. Yeah, here it is. Um, the wanderer Vachagota approached the Buddha and said to him, How is it now, Master Gotama? Is there a self? When this was said, the Buddha was silent. Then, Master Go Gotama, is there no self? A second time, the Buddha was silent. Then the wanderer Vachagota rose from his seat and departed without an answer. And Vachagota turns up in a lot of the text. He sort of, uh, he continually doesn't get answers he wants. Not long after the wanderer Vachagota had left, the venerable Ananda, his uh, assistant, said to the Buddha, why is it, venerable sir, that when you were questioned by the wanderer of Vachagota, you did not answer? In other words, hey, why didn't you just teach about anatta? What's going on? And he said, if an Ananda, when I was asked by the wanderer of Vachagota, is there a self, I had answered, there is a self, this I w would have been siding with those who are eternalists, who go to one extreme. He's basically going to say the truth is in the middle. You know, neither self nor not self or no self is, there's actually some, a more nuanced way of understanding it. So this is, I think, a little bit different from the teaching of uh, uh, Anatta. If, I, if when I was asked by the wonder of Atragota, is there a self, I had answered there is a self, would this have been consistent on my part with the arising, with the knowledge that everything is Anatta, not self? No. And if when I was asked by him, is there no self, I had answered there is no self, the wanderer of Achagota, already confused, would have fallen into greater confusion, thinking, it seems that the self I formerly had does not exist now. Okay, so I'm not going to go on too much like <laughs> more like this, but you get a sense of uh, some of the reasons for confusion. And I'll just mention maybe one or two others. Um, I think that there, you know, again, if we were going to look at this in more detail conceptually, and by the way, I think we could take this topic and be together for a whole year and look it into in depth. You know, ultimately, I think there is a developmental perspective that is helpful, which I think is, can make sense of some of this, which is basically that at certain levels of development, it's actually very important to have a self. And then at certain advanced levels of development, we go beyond that usual sense of self. Yeah. This is how, this is one of the uh, passages on the, on the handout. This is, but you don't, don't look at it now. Uh, from uh, Tanasara Bhikkhu, who wrote a, a text called, a book, which I recommend, called Selves and Not, and not Self. <clears throat> he said, the issue is not what is my true self, but what kind of perception of self is skillful, and when is it skillful? What kind of perception of not-self is skillful, and when is that skillful? A sense of self is an important part of the practice, especially a sense of self that encourages responsibility, heedfulness, and care. Sometimes you have to do one thing at one stage, 
and turn around and erase it another. <clears throat> the path to the unconditioned is conditioned. In the attainment of awakening, you put aside both self and not self. So I think we can understand things developmentally that if people actually don't have a developed self or if there are barriers to that sense of self, it's actually important to develop a sense of self. You know, I find sometimes, some of you know that, how many of you know the term spiritual bypassing? It's an interesting term. It was developed to say that some people use spiritual practice in a way which doesn't uh, get at basic developmental tasks that they have. You know, I, I have found sometimes in working with people that there are people who hear the teachings of not-self and they say, oh yeah, that's what I'm experiencing. I don't feel like I have much sense of self. And it's actually because they have some developmental wounds. You know, and they haven't, you know, maybe they were, their sense of self was suppressed in the family or maybe socially. You know, we're, you know, maybe around something like gender or race and schooling and they were told, you know, you know, we don't want to hear your view. We don't want to hear your opinion, right? And they were um, suppressed. And sometimes those people think, oh, I don't have much of a sense of self. I know what this teaching is about. And, um, or there might be people who don't want to deal with certain issues and they take on a spiritual persona. That's called spiritual bypassing. <clears throat> and one of my friends, a woman named Mariana Kaplan, did a wonderful play, which maybe I'll read from later if, I, if we have time, called Zen Boyfriends, in which she discussed dating from the perspective of one boyfriend, potential boyfriend after another, who seemed to engage in spiritual bypassing. You know, it's, it's really humorous. I mean, <clears throat> she would describe, you know, um, you know, being with someone and the person would say, um, you know, she would say, I think we need to talk about this. And she said, and the person would say, who is the self that thinks you need to talk? <laughs> I said, and she would say, when I hear that, I'm getting angry. Who is the self that is getting angry? You, you, you got it, right? <laughs> People using spiritual rhetoric maybe not to deal with certain things. And we all probably do that to some extent. So, um, so I tend to take a developmental perspective and see that there is an important place for having a firm sense of self. As Tanisar Bhikkhu said, there's a way in which to be ethical, to take responsibility for actions, you have to have some sense of self, right? And, but then at certain points, it's very valuable to go beyond a sense of self. And I'm going to be talking about this exploration using the metaphor of thinning the self and seeing where the self is thick. And I, I'll say a little bit about those two and then we'll, then we'll start to do our practices because I think this is enough of a map. So the basic map is saying um, <clears throat> there's a lot of conceptual confusion about these terms. I'm basically suggesting some kind of developmental perspective where having a self is actually quite important. Some of you know there's a well-known psychologist named Jack Engler, also a meditation teacher, who said you have to have a self before you get rid of the self so to speak. You don't really get rid of the self, but you experience, you have the potential of experiencing without a strong sense of self. And so, uh, but what I would say was that it's actually, it can be very important to look into experiences when we don't have uh, much of a sense of self. And I would say that probably for most of us, the most important experiences that we've ever had in our lives are probably experiences where the sense of self is thinned out. So let me say a little bit more about that. Um, there's a Hungarian psychologist, some of you know, who developed the sense of flow, right? Uh, named Mahali uh, Csikszentmihalyi. It's, it's one of these. It's a name that's. Uh, I think I got it more or less right, but it's hard to pronounce. And he developed the sense of flow and said that was basically pointing to 
a lot of our basic experiences, we are fully engaged. Let me see if I have a, here's a definition. With flow, a person is performing an activity fully immersed in the feeling of energized focus, full involvement, and enjoyment in the process of the activity. In essence, flow is characterized by, com by complete absorption in what one does. And complete absorption typically means very little or no self-consciousness or self-image. And I think it's actually a way more common experience than we might think. And for me, this is a very ordinary way to get into a sense of what is meant by anatta or not self. And so you can think of experiences when you've had a flow. And I think it occurs when we're immersed in our work. You're just doing your work. You don't have any sense of self. You're just functioning well. <clears throat> and um, fully absorbed, no distraction, and no, not much sense of self. Some of our most meaningful experiences of flow may occur, for example, when we are in the uh, natural world and we're fully with the forest or the ocean or the mountains and we may feel very connected. There's not much sense of self or any sense of self and we're just, we're just there. How many can relate to those kind of experiences? Yeah. <clears throat> I think we also have those experiences when we're with people we're very close to. People you don't have to worry about being this way or that way, right? You let you, you don't have your guard up, right? You, you're just with them, you're connected, and you're just being yourself, so to speak, and there's not much sense of self, you're just with the flow. And at a high degree, this would be with someone that you're in love with, or very connected with, and you can have moments when there's no sense of self, and there's just the being with the other, and sometimes even going into almost like a sense of, you know, a sense of energy or a sense of just energetic flow with another person. <clears throat> this also occurs uh, very much in uh, the experiences of art or music or creativity, right? There can be a sense of flow. How many can relate to that sense of flow with creativity or art or music can be listening or playing? Um, let's see. This is from John Coltrane well-known spiritual teacher. Okay. John Coltrane said, as a musician, all a musician can do is to get closer to the sources of nature and so feel that one is in communion with natural laws. And you think of jazz, right? A musician is just totally there with the, the gifts being expressed in music, not self-conscious, just totally in the flow, right? And if a musician actually s starts thinking, that was a really good riff, it's gone actually at that moment, right? That to me, so see, these are experiences that, you know, if you were doing another month or two, I would be inviting you, tune into these experiences in everyday life. They're more than we might think, where there's that sense of flow, maybe do, doing the dishes, having a meal, and you can actually encourage this, and the meditative practices help us actually deepen in that, I think, by tracking for when a sense of self arises and just coming back to that sense of flow. I've been very interested in how the sense of flow is there in sports, because it's another area where it can be very strong. I brought in a book, actually, which you might want to look at, from a friend of mine called Playing in the Zone, Exploring the Spiritual Dimensions of Sports by Andrew Cooper. Wonderful book. And I like, you know, in, in uh, I think, especially in basketball, they have a sense of uh, um, being in the flow, and they use the language being in the zone, right? And again, think of the qualities that are, <clears throat> are there in when one is in the zone. Uh, but I would say it's basically no sense of self, often a sense of connection. This is from Bill Russell. Some of you know Bill Russell? the great player for the Celtics, right, from like a generation or two ago. He said this, every so often a Celtics game would heat up so that it became, it became more than a physical or even mental game and would be magical. The feeling is difficult to describe and I certainly never talked about it when I was playing. When it happened, I could feel my play rise to a new level. 
At that special level, all sorts of odd things happened. I was almost as if I was playing in slow motion. So time is different. I did a sense of time being different with the sense of flow. <coughs> During those spells, I would almost sense how the next play would develop and where the next shot would be taken. Even before the other team brought the ball in bounds, I could feel it so keenly that I'd want to shout to my teammates, it's coming there, except I knew everything would change if I did. <coughs> I have a little bit of cold. Um, <coughs> and he talked about the uh, qualities of being in the flow. He talked about there being profound joy, acute intuition, which sometimes feels like precognition, a feeling of effortlessness in the midst of intense exertion, a sense of the action taking place in slow motion, feelings of awe and perfection, increased mastery and self-transcendence. How many of you know something like those qualities in maybe in a meditation retreat or in meditation, right? Because I think the same things arise, you know, the same kind of experience arise. So I'm suggesting this as a kind of common sense way of understanding what's being pointed to by not-self and something that's accessible in our ordinary experience. You see why it's a little more help, can be a little more helpful to look at it this way than to get into all the concepts that can be quite confusing. So what I'm going to point to during the day, on the one hand, is that we can look at the experiences where there's more of that sense of flow, more of a sense of being with experience without much sense of self, and we can develop this in meditation. And I think this was actually part of what was um, pointed to by the Buddha in this teaching. He was saying that there are meditative ways of training to be with the flow of experience. So I'm just with, okay, there's this, this thought, there's this perception, there's this sensation. And I can, in a meditative way, set up my mindfulness so that there is more and more just a sense of flow of experience without much sense of self. So this is one of the directions, this is one of the two directions that we'll explore today. Opening up to that sense of flow, knowing, developing different practices that help us to move in that direction, learning how to do it in ordinary experience, right? So that's one emphasis. Now, there's also the uh, emphasis on, we might say, the opposite, which is that sometimes we notice that the sense of self is thick. That's what I was inviting in the <clears throat> guided meditation, that there can be a, a sense of uh, the sense being thick, a strong sense of self. Now again, I don't want to say that a strong sense of self is simply wrong, get rid of it, get to the thinned out self. That's, that could bring us some of the dangers I mentioned of spiritual bypassing or suppressing what is actually an important part of experience. But nonetheless, it's a big part of our practice to look at that sense of self over and over again. And many of you have been doing that in your practice. Notice when the self becomes thick. So I'm using these metaphors of thin and thick, which I find uh, really helpful for uh, looking, at, looking at this teaching. And I, I, I should say that I <clears throat> first heard the terms thin, the thinning of the self, and the thick self, maybe not so much the thick self, but I had some friends who are teachers named uh, Tina Rasmussen and Stephen Snyder. Does anyone know them? They teach on concentration practice. Some of you may have. <clears throat> I, did a, I did a few retreats with them, and I like the metaphor. I think they use more of the thin, but I, I also thought, okay, well, there's also the thick, <laughs> right? And so I said, this is a nice metaphor to use to, to have our radar up for studying a sense of a thick self whenever it appears. And it's going to appear for all sorts of different reasons. And again, not something just to get rid of. Because studying the self 
is really a key part of our practice when the self manifests. Um, some of you know there's a famous passage in uh, Zen by uh, the teacher Dogen, Dogen Zenji, who was from about, about the 13th century. And he has this famous line, some of you probably know this. He says, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. There you go. You know, he, he could have said, to study the Buddha way is to study the thick self. You know, he said, it's to study the self. Then he said, uh, this is pointing to the developmental sequence, to study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. So I could just say, remember that line, go out and practice, goodbye. <laughs> okay, but <clears throat> we're going to take a day looking into it, because I think it's more skillful for <clears throat> having things to take home. And so we want to notice the many different ways that there's a thick sense of self. I mentioned some of them in the guided meditation. One time, one way that the self is thick is when we're just very self-preoccupied, right? I'm thinking a lot about this or that. You know, I'm thinking of something related to me. You know, should I take this job or not? Should I, you know, how do I, you know, that person said something, I didn't like it. What should I do with that? <clears throat> uh, should I make this choice or that choice, right? And, and we may be thinking a lot. Again, not good or bad, but there's a thick self sense of self there, right? And we want to look at that. Another, um, another instance would be when there's reactivity. When, I'm, when I have a strong reaction, either that leads me to grasp in some way or to push away. You know, and this is something that we really want to look at. You know, we can see this when the mind either really wants something or doesn't want something. When there's grasping or pushing away. Uh, and there can be a very strong sense of self there. Uh, <clears throat> I, I once looked at this, uh, I taught a class once uh, with Diana Winston, who's, a, who, who's a <clears throat> also a spirit rock teacher, who we taught together a lot for about 10 years, and then she moved to Los Angeles, where she's director of a training programs connected with UCLA in, in, in mindfulness. And we, we wanted to do a class, and we called it uh, Greed Management. <laughs> We had very, very low enrollment. <laughs> In fact, we had two teachers and five students. <clears throat> but we were really into the subject, and we, we studied, you know, we did it, it was a five-week class, and we were really interested in the dynamics of greed <clears throat> and what it looked like. And we had a final exam uh, for the class in which we, I, we invited people to go to a newly opened uh, Bed Bath & Beyond store um, nearby in, in the uh, Bay Area and to do silent walking meditation for half an hour in the Bed Bath & Beyond store. It was a really interesting experience. I noticed uh, grasping developing for items which before I'd been in the store I didn't even know existed. <coughs> and, but um, it was interesting because it was particularly interesting uh, to really study greed carefully, because there was a lot about the self. There was a lot of study about the self. That what we found was that when we were in the throes of greed, and this is again something you can study when you study reactivity. When we were in the throes of greed, there was uh, it was like totally self-centered. There was a strong sense of this is me. I want this. There was very little sense of other people, or their needs. And there was also very little sense of consequences. That's what we found was characteristic. There was no long-term thinking when there was greed. It was just, I want this now. Other people do not matter. Consequences do not matter. We're not thinking that, but that's what we found to be the case. So we study this. We study reactivity. We study greed. We study judgmental mind. We study all the ways we push away. And we just study this. So again, those of you who are looking for meditation just to be a quick entry into bliss and peace and calm, well, it can be for a while, but we actually, it really has this kind of dual rhythm. Sometimes we go into the hard stuff, sometimes we go into the beautiful stuff. That's how it is. 
And if we get more attached to one or the other, we get out of balance with it. <clears throat> Maybe a few more words about the thick self. <clears throat> Some of the reasons that the thick self develops is because there can be an area of a wound or something difficult. If we have trauma in our background, you know, or if we have something difficult happened, there'll be a thick sense of self there. We want to study it. Ultimately, we want to know about that thick sense of self because that can help us to heal it. We can work with it. This is where we maybe get into the psychological work. So sometimes when we see a thick sense of self, we don't want to just transcend it. We want to say, ah, oh, there's hurt there. I need to attend to that. So that's some of what manifests when there's a thick sense of self. And so it's not just about going beyond things. Sometimes it says, I need to attend there. <clears throat> um, yeah, sometimes, uh, you know, like with when I teach on the judgmental mind, we notice a thick sense of self around judgments. That can actually be a doorway into seeing how there can be a thick sense of self beneath the surface. And part of the complexity of the self is that a lot of our sense of self is somewhat unconscious. Have you noticed that? Or over time? So I might have beneath the surface, this is what we find when we look at the judgmental mind, I might have beneath the surface a sense that I'm not okay or I'm not adequate. We might have a very strong sense of self which until a certain point is mostly unconscious. So that's another complexity of all this. Much of the sense of self can be relatively unconscious. And we want to, like I use the judgmental mind as a way to uncover the stuff beneath the surface. Psychology, psychotherapy can do the same thing, right? And there's also stuff beneath the surface from social conditioning, you know? If you think of, we can have a strong sense of self related to, um, some of our conditioning, and we kind of see it particularly around some of the social hierarchies, like gender and race and sexual orientation, maybe age, religion, and so forth. <coughs> and there also can be a relatively unconscious sense of self. If we're on the bottom side of a hierarchy, it's a sense of I'm less than. It gets internalized, right, from the society. And if we're on the upper end of a particular hierarchy, we have unconscious sense of self, I'm better than. Some of you probably have noticed that in, you know, in working with that. I have African-American friends who have been in groups on studying what they call internalized depression, which is a strong sense of self, which can be relatively unconscious, right? An example of that, some of you may know, there was a study um, that was done in the 40s and 50s called the Dahl Test. How many of you have heard of this? Probably quite a few. <clears throat> and there were African-American girls were, at, were shown two dolls, one of them a black doll, one of them a white doll, and asked, which is the good doll? And their answer was, the white doll is the good doll, the black doll is the bad doll. Right? It was actually in a study which was very instrumental for the 1954 Supreme Court decision against school uh, segregation. But, and then those girls were also asked, which doll is like you? And some of them couldn't answer it. There was like what we would call cognitive dissonance. They couldn't go there. And some of them said, the black doll is like me. They were six years old or eight years old. They had already internalized a deep sense of self, a uh, negative sense of self, right? I mean, that's, that's pretty heartbreaking when you hear it. And we all have some version of that, some more, a lot, a lot more than others. But we all internalize like that. That's why I was saying, well, if we really want to deal with this, it's going to take a year or more, right? Or, you know, maybe it's like a lot. So the, so the map is big, right? The map of looking into the self and working with it is a big map. The other side of it, of course, is that people on the uh, higher end of the hierarchy have what I would call internalized privilege. It's also relatively unconscious, right? You have to look at it, you know, <clears throat> whether you're a man or a white person or a younger person and so forth or a person of this religion <clears throat> or, you know, heterosexual or whatever. There's, there, 
there's that internalization of, it can be very subtle, I'm better than, right? How many of you have studied that to some extent? Yeah. So there's a lot of, so I guess what I'm pointing to is that there can be a, a thick sense of self that's unconscious. That's why, you know, if we're really looking into this deeply, it's a several year process at the least, right? <clears throat> but we're going to start here. So what I'm saying is that the thick sense of self can be there for all sorts of reasons, you know? It can be there because of the social conditioning. It can be there because of psychological experience. You know, think of someone whose uh, parents divorced when that child was five years old. And there was a strong reaction to that. And maybe the child said, you know, gosh, I can't be close to people because when I'm close to people, they'll leave me, right? And people develop sort of what we sometimes call a limiting belief around that. And then the person's 30 years old, 35 years old, is in relationship. The partner wants to go away for a weekend, and the person freaks out, right? Because we would say they're abandoning issues, right? That come from being five years old, a thick sense of self. Well, that thick sense of self, if you study it, is a pointer towards, oh, I need to heal here. I need to do some work. So you can see that the thick sense of self is going to be there for multiple reasons. Some of them uh, that need some long-term work, some of them which, which don't, right? So that's what I'm meaning by, by thick sense of self. <clears throat> so that's what we'll look at. So that's the map, right? That's the map of, number one, the whole sense of self is confusing, pointing but pointing to uh, a developmental sequence in which we um, have to deal with a sense of self up to a certain point, but then we can also, in a way, go beyond it. Right? That's the map, and that the practices that we'll be looking at will be primarily working with more of a sense of flow, and then noticing when the thick self comes up. Those are the two core, the two core um, areas of practice, and for each of those, there are a set of different practices. So that's the map. Okay. Let me just ask before we'll go to a walking uh, practice in a few moments. Any initial questions or a request for clarification you know, that might help you to to keep going with this? Yeah. Well, when you're talking about the thick sense of self, I'm thinking of you know the personality yeah. versus the thick sense of self, and that we all have a personality. Yeah. So my question would be. How are you looking at those two different concepts? Yeah, not, not to go too much into it conceptually. I'm, I'm kind of defining the thick sense of self more experientially. When does it appear thick? You know, and so we all have personalities. Sometimes the personality will feel thick. You know, we'll say, you know, <clears throat> and we'll have, we may have an interaction, and I'm, uh, you know, maybe my personality likes a lot of order, let's say. And I find myself in a disordered place and I become reactive and judgmental, right? We want to look at that reactivity. You know, we're, and, you know, in the course of it, we might have some, you know, some way we work with, you know, my personal conditioning. Does that, does that get enough? Yeah. <clears throat> but mostly we're looking experientially for when the thick, when the self feels, oh, there's something thick here. Thick means it's taking up uh, time and attention. And it's, you know, it's, again, reactivity, could be self-image, self-consciousness, uh, something like that. <clears throat> okay. okay, any other, any other request for clarification? Okay, does that map make some sense? And it's, you can see how it's really, it is com complex, right? You get into developmental questions, conceptually it starts to get complex. But again, trying to keep it simple. Again, the thick self, uh, not necessarily bad, get rid of it, right? Sometimes it's a pointer towards work we need to do, right? Okay? Um, and you also can obviously apply the analysis of the thick self uh, to the post-election phenomena. Okay, I won't say more there. <laughs> okay. Um, okay.
So I want to do a walking meditation. And let's take about 20 minutes. And I want you to, uh, how many of you have not had instructional walking meditation? Raise your hand. Okay. So um, for those who need instruction, in a moment, I'll give some instruction right up here. Pretty simple. Um, uh, so for those who know, we'll do 20 minutes of walking meditation. The first 10 minutes, just do your normal walking meditation to get settled. And then, much like we did in the guided meditation, for the second 10 minutes, be on the lookout for if there's any thick sense of self, even for a moment. Could just be, I'm walking, you know, uh, someone is revving up an engine and and you have the thought, I don't like that. (laughs) Okay, that's the thick sense of self. Okay, just notice it, not to get rid of it, just notice, study it. We study the thick sense of self thousands and thousands of times. The whole premise is that when we notice things enough, there's an inherent wisdom which notices what's helpful and notices what's not helpful, and we gradually let go of what's not helpful. That's the premise of mindfulness practice. It makes sense, right? That there's a natural wisdom. When we study stuff with mindfulness, just look into it. We, you know, it's like my, my planning. I plan so much. And when I just looked at it with mindfulness, I'd say, I took, I planned my report for the next, two, uh, for two days from now, I planned it 80 times. 20 would be perfectly sufficient. <laughs> you know? Wisdom arises, right? <laughs> you know? So, Look out for the thick self-developing, and then if nothing much is happening, see if you can just be with that sense of the flow and walking in a very ordinary way. So just tune into those two aspects, okay? 20 minutes, you can do the walking in here, you can do it outside, and then we'll come back and go further, okay? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.